Hey, welcome to the Kincaid and Breckenridge Highlight Show, uh, available on iTunes. You can listen to us, obviously, uh, weekday mornings at 9.30 on News Talk 770. Today we talked to Professor Jill Scott out of Queen's University about this notion that Canadian universities, uh, many of them are looking to make certain Indigenous studies courses compulsory if you want to be able to graduate from that institution. Also, when health studies collide, we chatted with Tim Caulfield from the University of Alberta about how we make sense of all these health studies that come out that seem to be contradicting one another. Don't forget to be listening to us uh, weekdays, 930 to 1230, right here on News Talk 770 and Newstalk770.com. 770, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. Welcome back. Uh, I'm Roger. That's Rob Breckenridge. I missed one hell of a week last week, apparently. And uh, someone else has texted in to say, I did, right? I, mm, yeah, I yeah. Confirmed. Someone else has texted in, 77770, to say that, that, that he or she missed the interview with the Premier. Yeah, um, we got it up on our SoundCloud page. I, I mean, I'll send that person a, a link because, uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's out there and people can, can listen to it. I also do want to uh, send out a shout out to someone who texted. Now, this was simply a case of, uh, I think, great minds thinking alike. Because someone texted to say, hey, that, that case, that 13-year-old, reminds me of the girl who helped kill her family in medicine hat. So that person sent it, sent a tax, and then I, I mentioned the case, and he thought, oh, Rob's referencing my tax, and he's not crediting me. Now, we're both thinking the same thing. But I said, you know what, you deserve a shout-out nonetheless. Although he didn't give his name, so I, I don't know who to thank, but no. I, I Bang just, on. <clears throat> Good point, and I'm glad I made it. I just want to – I was thinking the same thing, too. Oh, good. Yeah, right. so – unanimous. All right, let's get on to this next topic of ours, because it seemed uh, uh, controversial when I first heard about it a couple of weeks ago. But this idea that a university would would uh, make compulsory, make mandatory uh, courses in Indigenous studies. Now, you can't just cruise through university, the best of my knowledge, without taking certain courses. I think that in order for them to give you the, uh, what is it, a lambskin the, uh, the the diploma at the end of it all, your degree, then you have to have some basic competency in some things, some very basic things, and that's kind of how you get through university, and you get to pile on your major on top of that and whatnot. Um, but should Indigenous studies be one of those things? Well, and you think about all the different kinds of courses you can take at a university, the kinds of careers you can pursue, and what you need to know in those those kinds of professions. Now, starting next year, as the National Post reports today, every undergraduate at the University of Winnipeg, also at Lakehead University in Thunder Bay, will have to take at least one Indigenous Studies course. Mount Royal University uh, here in Calgary, in fact, looking at something similar, that Aboriginal-themed coursework would be a graduation requirement. Now, if you're studying Canadian history, obviously that's something you need to, to study. That's got to be a part of the curriculum. If you're studying to be a, a doctor... Is, is something that, that doctors need to be aware of. It's something that technicians need to be aware of. If you're studying computer sciences, do you need to be aware of this? Or studying to become a dentist? So I don't know. I mean, you know, it's an interesting question to ask. And, and how much responsibility do universities bear in making sure that future Canadians know this this part of our history? All right, let's bring uh, our guest into this. This is Professor Jill Scott, professor in the Department of Languages, Literatures, and Cultures at Queen's University. Uh, professor Scott, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks. Hi. Hi there. So I mean, let's let's start with this uh, first question, because Rob, Rob uh, puts it quite well. I mean, do we need to uh, have a basic understanding of Indigenous uh, uh, history if we are studying to be a doctor or, or a technician of some sort? Is this the kind of policy that would apply to all streams of study? 
Well, you know, uh, I think that it is true that all Canadians need to have uh, knowledge, and I think there's uh, good evidence actually coming out now to show that um, our K-12 uh, education is not actually doing that, um, that there needs to be a curriculum overhaul um, at that level as well. Um, I guess what I think is that there are certain professions that need, need very specific uh, kinds of uh, training and knowledge around First Nations peoples um, and Indigenous ways of learning and knowing. Um, and I think it's fantastic that some of these universities are uh, creating mandatory courses. What I'd like to see is a variety of courses available uh, so that people can choose uh, from, um, you know, kinds of content, whether that be uh, politics or law or healthcare, um, or even in the, in the situation of, let's say, engineering, working with remote communities and potentially uh, First Nations communities. So how would that be implemented? What, what kind of a policy would, uh, would a university adopt to, to try to reflect that? Well, most universities do have uh, breadth requirements, uh, and so that means that, uh, you know, if you're studying arts, for example, you might take a social sciences or a science course um, or vice versa. Okay. Um, and so this would be something that uh, would be just a- another one of those uh, requirements so that you would have a variety of courses to choose from in order to fulfill that requirement for a degree. Well, what's the what's the purpose here? Are we trying to... Uh Increase knowledge or increase sensitivity or sensitive? Uh, I think both. I think both. I, I think there's, um, uh, you know, there's, um, there's, as I said, there's growing evidence and there's some really good studies being done now around the average Canadian's knowledge about uh, the history of First Nations peoples, the current realities and experiences um, of uh, Indigenous uh, uh, communities. And um, there's good evidence to show that the Canadians, in fact, are not informed. Um, and uh, and I actually think that this is applicable to regardless of the, pop, the, the profession that you'll um, undertake because um, First Nations people, this is the fastest growing population in Canada. And it's hard to imagine that any Canadians could go through their working life without encountering uh, working with First Nations people. Um, and so... I think, I think that's uh, that's definitely valid. Now, look, I don't want to underestimate the difficulty of implementing this kind of a recommendation, um, and I think that there are many other uh, very sound ways to address the recommendations in the Truth and Reconciliation Report. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, one of those would be um, specific uh, ro- uh, support uh, for Aboriginal students plus. Uh, specific recruitment methods, um, shifting curriculum uh, across the board to include more Indigenous content, working on the environment so that um, all staff and and faculty um, get some professional development around working with First Nations students, um, and then also working with local um, First Nations communities to ensure that there's a good fit uh, for those communities who are most affected in the area where that uh, institution sits. Well, and, and what they would hope to get from this. I mean, this National Post article uh, quotes, uh, there's a Ph.D. candidate in, in Native Studies at University of Manitoba who, who wrote a long piece about this and said, this really doesn't amount to reconciliation. This is really nothing more than having students, as he puts it, quote, learning more about Indians. Okay, so you know what? Um, when I read that, um, I, I actually I read the whole piece uh, that he wrote, and mm-hmm. my sense is that what he was trying to get at is a mandatory course is one thing. It's not the only thing. Um, definitely, we know that a little bit of knowledge can be quite a dangerous thing, right, because people then make um, all kinds of assumptions. But if you um, embed that little bit of knowledge, meaning one mandatory course, uh, with a bunch of other initiatives at post-secondary institutions, 
things to uh, round out the picture, um, then I think you're going to do a better job. Who bears the cost of this, though? Is it not on the student to pay for the mandatory course? Well, students pay for every course. Right. So whether the courses within the degree are mandatory or not, uh, it's not going to change the cost of their degree. That said, I don't think we can be naive about the cost to the institutions. Um, all of this uh, change does cost money, um, but we're busy changing anyway. <laughs> so if we're going to be making changes to our curriculum, then let's consider this one as well. Yeah, sure. I mean, I agree with that. But I, you know, going back to my post-secondary days, I remember how uh, excited I was about the radio classes I took and how much I begrudged the university for forcing me uh, to pay for political science and English, two courses that I needed to graduate, but that I certainly didn't want to take. I think one of the biggest issues that we have between uh, First Nations populations and the rest of Canada, if you will, is that we've got this us and them mentality. There's a lot of people that would very cheerfully, very willingly take Indigenous studies courses in university just for personal improvement, but also as part of their degree. But then there are people who certainly wouldn't, but find out that they have to. And doesn't that further drive the wedge between us and them? Well, I think you're right that any time we make something mandatory, we run a risk uh, of uh, having it feel pro forma, of having people um, become defensive about that. Um, that said, um, I think that there are ways of doing that uh, that uh, are going to, as I said, provide opportunities to for a variety of kinds of courses so that it's not just one course, um, but rather a variety of, of kinds of courses that could be chosen. So, for example, if you were interested in radio studies, wouldn't it be interesting? Interesting to do something along the lines of radio in Indigenous communities, for example. You, you alluded to this earlier, though. I mean, it, it would seem to make more sense maybe at a high school level because it's not as though high school kids have the option of saying, "Look, I'm planning on, I'm planning on studying physics. I don't need to take social studies." There's an expectation that high school students, that their education does run the gamut, whatever it is they plan on doing after high school, even if they don't go on to post-secondary education. That high school is the opportunity for them to really learn our history, where they're old enough and mature enough, I think, to to take on some of these more difficult issues like residential schools. Yeah, actually, I think I think you're absolutely right, and in fact, I. I wouldn't say it's just high school. I would say it's K to 12. Um, if we look at where um, where the, the 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 you know the best kinds of interventions that, that can be done, it really uh, begins, uh, frankly, in, in with kindergarten. I mean, the minute the kids are are engaged in education in any formal sense, um, giving them opportunities to um, you know experience uh, from in a variety of uh, ways uh, exposure to First Nations traditions is really important. If we look at the curriculum and uh, across Canada, and every province obviously has its own curriculum, uh, but uh, there is one thing that is uniform, and that is um, that there is insufficient um, content on Indigenous histories and experiences, and that what content is there um, is is not uh, does not have a depth uh, to be able to to really uh, paint a broad picture. And and I would also say that look, I mean our our educators um, have not uh, had the professional development that they they need in order to be able to deliver these curricula in good ways. And I certainly don't fault those people because um, they too uh, grew up in a system that didn't necessarily acknowledge um, the importance of First Nations experiences and histories. Our guest is uh, Professor Jill Scott, uh, professor in the Department of Languages, Literatures, and Cultures at Queen's University. Um, how far down the road, then, uh, should universities go in this endeavor? You, you said earlier that uh, a little bit of knowledge, as we know, can be a very dangerous thing. Um, but there clearly can't be a mandate to, to force university students to go through entire, you know, one, two, three hundred level courses in the same, in the same course. Can the classes in the same course? 
No, no, no. I, I think what we're talking about here is we're, we're talking about a very, like, let's say, I think in the case of uh, University of Winnipeg and um, uh, University of Regina, that we're talking about one semester of a course. Um, it's not a huge amount when you consider, you know, four years of university education, um, but it's something. But, but look, I mean, I do think it is the responsibility of every um, single educational institution, um, schools, colleges, universities, to look seriously at the TRC recommendations and see, well, where's the fit for us? It's not going to be the same answer for every uh, place, uh, but I think there has to be an answer. And I do know that many universities right now are quite busy developing plans um, to build in uh, sustainable ways to in, to indigenize the curriculum, to look at student support, um, to look at environment. And so that plan will hopefully enable every place in the university, departments, programs, et cetera, to be able to respond in a way that makes sense for that program. Should Indigenous students have to take these courses as well if, uh, if uh, do, they're required to to get a degree? I think if you're going to require it of non-Indigenous students, I think you have to require it of Indigenous students. And actually, you'd be surprised um, how many uh, Indigenous-identified uh, students there are who feel that they actually don't have enough knowledge about their own histories and traditions because it hasn't been available in mainstream ways, mm-hmm. and in some ways it's not actually available in their communities either. I mean, I think one of the things behind all of this is the fact that, you know, the history of residential schools did a lot of damage to the relationship of First Nations peoples to educational systems in the first place. Yeah. So whatever, whatever it is that we do now in response really has to be very thoughtful because the potential to do damage is always there. And uh, so it's tricky, it's awkward, it's uncomfortable, um, and you know what? That's good for us. Back to the implementation side of things, and, and just in terms of how it works, because it's it's one thing for the federal government to say, you know, we're we're going to adhere to all these recommendations, um, but actually doing so is another matter. Can Ottawa just simply impose that on all universities across the country? Isn't, aren't universities under provincial jurisdiction? Yes, they are. Yes. No, okay. you're 100% right. No, uh, Ottawa cannot impose that on, on universities. You know, there are certain levers, funding levers, uh, that are available um, from a federal perspective, but they're minimal. Um, it really is a provincial matter, um, and so it is really up to provinces to, to set the tone for each of, uh, uh, for their jurisdiction. Um, that said, um, my, you know, knowledge of the post-secondary um, system and, and folks working in this area is that um, really universities and uh, and colleges are going to be responding um, and uh, and I and I think um, in a variety of ways all right professor Scott thank you so much for your time today we appreciate it okay thanks. All right, take care that's uh, professor Jill Scott professor in the Department of language uh, literatures and cultures at the at uh, Queen's University <clears throat> so I, I think she's you know, coming at it in in a responsible way, saying, you know, I mean, universities should be doing this. I mean, just the education system as a whole should be doing this. Uh, just that we need to be careful about how much you know, we mandate, you know, say you have to do this. And the, the point you made about, you know, students resenting this or just saying, oh, pff, what, I can blow that class off. That's just, that's, you know, one silly course I got to take. But, uh, you know, it's really doesn't matter in what I'm trying to do here at university. You don't want kids resenting it or... You know, feeling like they're being forced to do it, and and what are they really going to get from it in that sense? Are they going to really get an appreciation of these issues if we're we're ramming it down their throats? I, I don't think so. No, 
I can't see it ever happening. If, if any student goes into that class thinking that they don't want to be there, I have to do this. That's terrible for the relationship. Ultimately, this is about the relationship between our First Nations brothers and sisters and, and the rest of Canada, as I put it earlier. So I think that you got to make sure that you're fostering that relationship and, and, and opening doors to it. And I, I just feel that making anything compulsory or mandatory could could damage, could harm that uh, that goal. Now, we're going to get to some phone calls. Randy's up first, 974-8255, when we come back from this break. Across the porch, All right, Kincaid and Breckenridge on Newstalk 770-974-8255 is our telephone number. So, look, we, we uh, agreed to set up this Truth and Reconciliation Commission, right? The previous government, the Harper government, set that in motion. And uh, this committee came back with its recommendations. The commission came back with its recommendations. This is one of them. And, of course, the federal liberals have just broadly said, yep, we're going to adhere to all of the recommendations. The Pope is going to say sorry. Pope is going to say sorry. That's one of the recommendations. Obviously, there are some things that are a little bit outside of Ottawa's control. I think this is one of them. Um, so what, what role do universities have to play in ensuring that Canadians, young Canadians, have a knowledge of this country's history and, in particular, the relationship and the troubled history between Aboriginal Canadians and non-Aboriginals? And how do you fit that in? I mean, university students obviously take on a considerable course load as it is and say, well, guess what? You're going to study to be a, a, a physicist. You know, you're going to get a Nobel Prize and some breakthrough in physics. And by the way, you need to take this course. Does that make sense? Can we agree, by the way, can we just put a partition here that we should have better indigenous studies in K to 12, right? Does anybody disagree with that? I mean, I'm, my experience with that is that Indians were constantly at summer camp. Well, but yeah, but that was then. I mean, Not my sure. sense of it now, and I got a daughter who's in middle school, this certainly is, is part of the social studies curriculum. Today, it's there. Someone else texted, texted us to say that, yeah, in Alberta, it is a mandatory part of the curriculum from K to 12. So I, I, I do think, yeah, I mean, I certainly don't remember learning a lot about it either. But I think that's changed a lot. And so I, I don't think the debate should be shaped by our experience in school many, many, many years ago, Roger. But rather, you know, what, what's the reality today? All right, let's get to the phones here, and Randy's called in. Hi, Hi Randy, go ahead. Good morning, gentlemen. And you. Hey, real quick, my perspective of this is that the there's contempt for the natives for what the perception is that they get given by the government. Educations that the... Caucasian, shall we say, the, the average. Just say, Asian. just say white. I've never been to Caucasus. I, I understand. Yeah. That'll be taken as a racist, and I've not meant that at all. No, you won't. <laughs> um, gentlemen, the problem I have here is that this sort of forced education is going to further segregate, force things apart. The contempt is just going to be increased. Exponentially, the thought of this just pisses me off, guys. Well, really? I'm, I'm with you, Randy. I think that uh, the fact that we're, you know what, Randy, we're going to turn you back to your uh, uh, to the radio if you don't mind, just because of the, the the you're obviously working, so <laughs> we'll leave you to it. But uh, no, I think Randy's right. I mean, listen, the fact that we're talking about this as being compulsory makes people go, well, hey, whoa, why is that compulsory? And you're going to hear it from all sides. You're going to hear the you're going to hear somebody get up and go, well, maybe they should make white studies compulsory, huh? How about that? And and that's just what's going to happen. That's how this conversation is going to play out the way that we're talking about things these days. But I think that that Randy makes a point. If this was optional and you could take it, and I'm sure it's optional in many universities, I think you'd find a lot of people are interested in it. 
And I think that there is this misconception that uh, white Canada, if you will, as Randy put it, uh, wanted to put it anyway, Caucasian Canada doesn't want to know more about First Nations, doesn't want to have a better relationship with indigenous communities in this country. I think that's just false. I think there's a lot of people that would like to reach out. The question is, is should reaching out be in terms of a mandatory university course? Well, I just wonder. I mean, we could just make it the law that every Canadian has to read the Truth and Reconciliation Report. Would that accomplish more? Would that accomplish less than, than this plan? That's, you know, so what do we want Canadians to take from it? What is it in particular that we feel they need to know? Right? If we're just talking in broad terms about let's get along better, that's different than saying, you know, you should have a, a good understanding of the decisions that led to residential schools, how those schools are operated, the impact it had. I mean, you probably would get just as much from reading this report than you'd get from, from an, uh, you know, one semester college course. Uh, let's go back to the phones that we got uh, Jeff uh, on the line. Uh, Jeff, good morning. Yeah, I think this just reeks of cultural appropriation and racism on her part. Appropriation? How so? Well, she said herself she wants to force Native students into taking these courses. When did she, she wants to set the agenda of what they're going to learn. They're going to. I can just see these situations of these Natives forced into these classes being told by their Marxist professors, this is what your culture is. This is what it means to you. What does that sound like? Well, I I mean, it's a legitimate question uh, that if would would white professors be teaching these courses? And if we're going to are we going to make it mandatory for Aboriginal students to sit there in a classroom while a white professor tells them about their culture and their history? Uh, you know, look, I, I I don't disagree with that, Jeff. I, could, I don't know that I'd call it appropriation, but I can see why a lot of aboriginals would say, what the hell's the point of this? Well, is that, wasn't that what the residential schools were supposedly all about? No. Is that the point you're making, though? Is that, is that who would teach the course and who would be forced to take it? Well, I just think she tipped her hand, head on this and is giving Well, she's being consistent. She's saying that it should be... Universities yeah, okay. ...to basically set down for another ethnic group. This is what we want you to be. This is what we say you are. This is what we say your history was, is... And this is how you should be. Well, no, it's okay. Hang on. You're, yeah, you're, yeah, you're, pro- you're projecting into the future here. This is we're talking about a course in in history. Well, no, I, I think. Look, Jeff. Let's see if I can follow your line. I think the point Jeff's trying to make is that we've got, in a weird way, almost uh, the same kind of mentality that we saw lead to the residential schools. That here's a bunch of white people who think they know best, and they're going to tell Aboriginals how they're going to get educated. That these people today, that they're presumably with better intentions, but we've still got white people telling Aboriginals what they're going to learn and how they're going to learn it. Is that what you're saying, Jeff? Well, I think there's lots of this. Yes, and also just a quick example. I've noticed during hockey playoffs, when the Chicago Blackhawks go deep in the playoffs, I see so many natives wearing Chicago Blackhawk jerseys. I mean, the reserves when this has happened, just everywhere, Blackhawk jerseys, and yet these white liberals come out and say, this is offensive, and there's no way this should happen. There's no way a team should be called the Chicago Blackhawks. Okay. Well, well, hang on. Hang on. It's, all, it's just more white liberals okay. trying right. to speak for an ethnic. So you're saying yeah. there are a lot of condescending white liberals. Yes, exactly. Yeah, well, no, okay. <laughs> I don't disagree with that. All right. Well, good call, Jeff. Thanks very much. You know, I, got, I, I can't let the residential school comparison stand, though. The point of the residential schools, in large part, was to civilize indigenous populations. That's and, and I use that word because that's the word that was bandied about at the time. The point of residential schools was to take the savage out of the savage. The point of residential schools was to remove children from their parents 
who are not going to raise them in the way of the new world. So it wasn't yeah. basically, we're choosing a curriculum because we know best. It was, we don't like Indians, and we'd rather they didn't exist, but instead of eradicating them, we will just change them. No, no, no that's true. I, I think Jeff's point is, it's, it's a little ironic to have white liberals today saying how awful that was, that white people imposed an educational system on aboriginals, uh, so we're going to write that wrong by imposing a curriculum on aboriginals. But if it comes from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, then does it come from white liberals or does it come from indigenous people? Well, yeah, I mean, it is a recommendation, and obviously that wasn't just white liberals on, on that commission, clearly. Uh, Who are these white liberals, by the way? What what city do they play in? I'd like to go to one of their games. We've got more time for your calls coming up after 1030 here, nine seven four eight two five five. We can talk more about this. We've got some other matters to discuss here as well on this Monday morning. Kincaid and Breckenridge, we're back after this. Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Hi, right, welcome back. Kincaid and Breckenridge Show. I am Roger. That is Rob. Ah, Star Wars. Nothing but Star Wars. Give me the Star Wars. I think that's the best version of the song, the best rendition of it. Oh, my gosh. Bill Murray's the best. Yeah. Love <laughs> it. I don't know. Oh, apparently, he's got a Netflix Christmas special. I haven't watched it yet. Scrooged. Oh, it's that. He's a very <laughs> talking Murray. Yeah. I'm talking about the new one. Yeah, no, the he, plays, he gets, he gets uh, visited by the three ghosts. That one. <laughs> that one. All right. Well, we could probably get to some of that before all is said and done. These these two stories we're talking about this morning, mm-hmm. we're going to get into here. I, to me, the common thread here is the mixed messages aspects. It's like with uh, you know coffee. One week, the story about how bad coffee is for us. The next day, drinking coffee is going to save your life. Or red wine, you know, conflicting messages. Now... These are two big ones here. One of them is is cancer. And there was a study out earlier this year that suggested most of cancer is due to luck, basically in terms of, you know, your genetics, yeah. how old you live, et cetera. Yet now we got a new study out saying, well, no, in fact, it's all the choices you make. Now, essentially, we're all in the driver's seat and it's all environmental factors that, that are part of this this cancer risk. Well, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so what do you believe? You know, and the other one is this. You know, in terms of is it is it about weight or is it about fitness? That as long as you're active and healthy and eating well, then maybe it doesn't matter if you're overweight. It's about how fit you are. Now this study comes out and says, no, not at all. In fact, being overweight is uh, a health risk. And if you're slim, but you don't exercise much, you're better off. So now it's, again, it's those conflicting studies, conflicting stories. And, and so what are people to take from that? All right. Timothy Caulfield is our guest. We'll bring him in the program now. Uh, professor of Health Law and Science Policy and uh, author of his Gwyneth Paltrow Wrong About Everything When Celebrity Culture and Science Clash. Uh, we had fun talking to Timothy Caulfield about that book when it came out. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. So what do, you, what do you want to start with here, the cancer story or the fat, fit, fat story? Well, I, I, you guys are exactly right. There's so many mixed messages out there, and uh, these two stories are, are really good examples of mixed messages about some big stuff, right? So it is really frustrating for people like me who are working in the area of, of health policy because, you know, I hear it from the general public, um, and there's a little bit of research that shows that when you have these kind of mixed messages, you know, people just start shutting it out and they don't listen to the advice. But I do think 
I do think there is an overall kind of meta message here, which I'll come to at the end. Uh, let's <laughs> let's let's start with the the uh, the cancer one. I mean, really fascinating. You're right. About a year ago, there was this big study that said that it was all luck, right? You know what your gene, you know what your genes gave you were sort of was was going to be uh, your cancer risk, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think we've always known, and studies have shown consistently that behavior matters, right? You know, your healthy behavior matters, and that's what this most recent study shows. Uh, I'm inclined to, to think that this study is correct, and I think that the body of evidence says that this study is correct, but look, cancer is complex. The bottom mes- line message, though, is you don't smoke, you exercise, you drink in moderation. Those things matter, and this study kind of backs that up. Well, that's the thing. Smoking is an obvious one, right? If, right? if I were to see someone smoking and say, hey, don't you know smoking causes lung cancer, and the smoker says, no, nah, it's it's all luck. It doesn't matter if I smoke or not, right? We all know that that's a factor. That's a choice, you know, we can make that affects whether or not, you know, we're at a higher risk of a certain kind of cancer. So there, there's an obvious example right there. So clearly it's not all just luck. Yeah, it's, I mean, smoking is a really great example. I mean, if you believe the WHO, it will kill 50% of the people that, that do it. It has all these other kinds of, you know, uh, impacts. Uh, on your health. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, it makes a difference. The same with exercise. I mean, the studies are just piling up the benefits of exercise. So, you know, for me, I get frustrated when I hear these mixed messages because, you know, as you pointed out in the intro, often what people do, and there's, again, research to back this up, is they just stop listening, right? And that's a huge mistake. So we got to, you know, reduce the smoking rates, which, which are coming down, getting more people active, it will have an impact. Or the other thing, I guess, people hear what they want to hear, right? If they hear something that justifies what they're already doing. Like, I, I sit on the couch all day and I smoke all day, so this study that says cancer is all, all luck or this study that says, you know, that uh, exercise doesn't matter, whatever, as long as I can pick and choose what suits what I'm already doing, then that's great. Yeah, for sure, and that happens with this kind of, these kinds of studies. You know, you have those cognitive biases. You know, you find the evidence that supports your behavior. And, look, it's really, really hard, as you guys know, to change people's behavior, yeah. and this kind of mixed messaging doesn't help. Well, thank God we found the truth about that bacon kills you story, right, that bacon, in fact, doesn't hurt you at all, because am I right, guys? Okay. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Cognitive biases are fantastic. Yeah, that, that, uh, that curbed my salami uh, consumption by, like, the only one iota for a very short period of time. But is there a nugget of truth to both sides of it? Because it seems to me that, like, I'll put out a study that says, uh, you know, it doesn't matter if you smoke or drink or whatever. Uh, cancer really just comes down to luck of the draw. And then Rob will read that and go and take it as a challenge to disprove it. Is that sort of thing going on? Uh, yeah, and, and the, you know, the problem with all this stuff is it's ridiculously complex because genes do play a role. There's, no one's going to dispute that, right? So it is, you know, I wouldn't say it's easy. Obviously, these studies are huge <laughs> and cost a lot of money, so it's not easy to, to find evidence on either side. But you can find evidence to support both of those propositions. But even if cancer, I mean, even if genes do play a huge role in cancer, that doesn't take away from the truth of the value of, you know, all the preventative actions that we can take. And this one, it's it's almost more encouraging in a way to know that we're in control to some degree, that right? Because we all want to be able to to prevent it, to minimize our risk. If it's out of our hands entirely, if it's all down to luck, that that's a little discouraging. At least knowing that maybe we can take control to some extent. I mean, is is that a positive? Yeah, for sure it's a positive. Um, and there's research that shows it, that it's a positive. Some studies have shown that if people believe that, let's say, you know, getting cancer is due to your genes or being obese 
is due to your genes. They're less likely to be motivated to exercise, to eat, eat well. They, they adopt this kind of fatalistic behavior. Uh, so I think it is kind of a good news story that we can take actions to increase our, uh, our, our life, uh, our lifespan, but also to increase our quality of life, because I actually think that that latter point is more important. You know, you know we're all going to die, you guys. <laughs> I don't know if that's great <laughs> information for uh, the New Year's, but we're all going to die. And the, and the point is we want to increase our quality of life uh, as long as we can. That's right. Being born is a leading cause of death. That's really? right. Yeah, no one's You know, we're trying to keep it light around here, Tim. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay well, so what about this other one, though? Because this seems counterintuitive to me, that you're talking about the benefits, the obvious benefits of exercise. This, this other study out of Sweden, unfit, normal-weight individuals had a 30% lower risk of death from any cause than did fit, obese individuals. What do you take from that? Yeah, so this, as you guys know, it's been a, a debate that's been going on for, you know, like over a decade. Um, it's really been intense in our community, and this is the whole obesity paradox debate, right? So this is this idea that, that the important thing is not necessarily your BMI or not necessarily your, your overall weight, but, but whether you are adopting healthy habits, including eating well and exercising. So if you do those things, then being overweight doesn't matter as much. Uh, in fact, there are some studies out there that said in, in some select populations in particular circumstances that maybe even being overweight, not obese, but being slightly overweight had a protective uh, effect, that maybe they lived longer, they were able to handle surgery better, and those kinds of things. This study kind of cuts against that and suggests that, look, being a healthy weight is important. In fact, it's really important. Uh, and therefore, you know, they, they claim that it kind of blows up this obesity paradox theory, this fit and fat theory. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this, I, for me, this is one big study for sure. It was a long study. It was 30 years, I think, you know, and, uh, and they followed a large number of people. So it looks like it's powerful data. That, uh, so I think it's going to be a big part of the debate. But I don't think this debate is, is resolved. Well, yeah, that was kind of my next question is there's no study that ends all studies or, or has there been a study to end all studies? No, as far as I know, <laughs> there's been no studies and all studies. Uh, when that one comes out, we'll have another chat. But I think that this, this really does, um, you know, emphasize, I think, the importance of, of, of maintaining a healthy weight. I don't fully buy into either side of this argument. I think this is one that, again, it's a complex story, uh, but I don't think anyone's advocating putting on weight or that obesity is healthy. And, and I, you know, believe it or not, it's, you've, I've, I've heard the, those kinds of arguments, right, particularly uh, with respect to just being somewhat overweight. Uh, I, I think that the message, the take-home message from both of these studies, you guys, is uh, you know, living a healthy lifestyle, it really does matter. And what a great message for, you know, 2016, right, for the new year. Let's all adopt a healthy lifestyle. <laughs> uh, I get it. You're in, the, you're in the pocket of Big Jim. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny, too, because there were a couple of other s- stories last week, and, and, you know, I follow you on Twitter, and, and so I, you know, I try to stay on top of these things, because you, you mentioned this study uh, out of Sweden. There was a, a big study, a very long study, and, and sometimes these are details that get lost in translation when we're putting these stories out to the mass, you know, to the mass public in terms of, you know, the quality of the study, uh, how reliable is it. And the other thing that came out was, uh, you know, a different study last week about the use of 
language and press releases, how things are really getting hyped up these days and how, you know, you really need to sell the sizzle of, of the study. Is that skewing our perception of these things? Yeah, for sure. It's funny. I'm working on a paper on this topic right now today. Yeah, I think for sure that's, that's having uh, an impact, this, this increasing hype. There's all this pressure on the research community to present their work in a sensational manner. So I'm not saying that researchers necessarily do this intentionally, but there's this, these systemic pressures, you know, commercialization pressure pressures to get funding, pressures to publish uh, that cause people to inject a little bit of more hype into their stories, which which is then picked up by the media and skews what we we hear about it. And so I think we all need to remind ourselves to look carefully at how how good the study is. Uh, you know how how many people are involved. Was the methodology sound? Uh, and not just uh, accept what the study says. And 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 going back to something else that you guys noted. Um, look, science is is you know, you know there's never one study that's going to resolve everything. It's an ongoing story that nudges us closer to the truth, even if we never really get there. Right. But it, it, yeah. yeah, I mean, if something goes against the preponderance of evidence, that's all the more reason to say, okay, well, hang on a second here. Are they hyping it up? What's, you know, how, how, how good was the study in the first place? I mean, that sort of thing. Yeah, I and mean, for sure. I mean, there's almost never a, a breakthrough. <laughs> that sounds grim, yeah. too. But, you know, when they have that breakthrough kind of language, when they have language that says it's paradigm shifting, <laughs> when they have language that talks about these huge effect sizes, everyone should be skeptical. Because, you know, in general, science kind of nudges forward. And by the way, all these kinds of stuff, when you're talking about human behavior, nutrition, it's really hard to study because we are such complex entities, humans, right? So it's hard to tease out exactly what's going on. And that's why you have to have these huge studies that go for a long time so you can account for all the variables that may impact the results. Hmm. You're doing a study on that language is what you said. So we're, uh, we're very interested in, in this idea of hype and how hype is being uh, represented. So we've done a number of studies on that, actually. And for example, we did a study on, on how quickly something is portrayed as if it's going to get to the clinic. How quickly is it going to get to the clinic? And, and researchers often say it's going to be, you know, their new therapy is going to be in the clinic in five to ten years or sooner, which is almost impossible, right? But right. That's, that's a really good example of the kind of hype that finds its way out into popular culture and may skew what we, we think about where the, you know, the state of the science and what we should do for our health. Well, the Kincaid and Breckenridge Institute of um, <clears throat> the things, we're going to have a study that counters your study. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Perfect. Oh, uh, and also, Tim, if you want to include this in, in your study, there was a recording artist by the name of uh, Carlton Douglas Reidenhauer who once said, don't believe the hype. That's right. Don't yes. believe the hype. <laughs> <laughs> hey, nice to talk to you again, Timothy. Take care, sir. Great. Thanks, right, guys. Bye-bye. Timothy Caulfield. That's <laughs> that uh, Chuck D, by the way. Uh, it's better known as. No, I think that was actually by Public Enemy, Rob. But let's, why don't you check that on Wikipedia while we're go. in a commercial Tim Caulfield. Hey, by the way, the, uh, you mentioned his book, Is Gwyneth Paltrow Wrong About Everything? Uh, it's coming out in paperback uh, imminently, I understand. Mm-hmm. So watch for that. Be great under uh, someone's Christmas tree. I, I, I like talking to him because he just kind of goes, no, you're right. Like, study comes out, then there's study B to refute study A. It's like, you know, one minute uh, uh, fit and fat is okay. The next minute it's not healthy. One minute it's Columbia. The next minute it's Philippines. You never know. That's why. And I've seen him speak. And he, it's really interesting because he breaks it down. It's just, it's simple stuff. Eat well, exercise, don't smoke, get a good night's sleep. And, you, you know, you're pretty much good. You're covered. It's <laughs> the only policy. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a pause. We'll come back. There's a new study, by the way, new research into what the best Christmas movie of all time is. <laughs> but it, also from that institute you mentioned. <laughs> that's right. And it'll blow you away what it is. Did I hype it enough? <laughs> we'll be right back. Don't, don't, don't believe the hype. Don't, don't, 
yes. beautiful. I had this tape in grade nine, and I just listened over and over and over again. Wore it right off. Yeah, I had um, I had the uh, the power by Snap, and there was a song on that called "Don't Believe the Hype" is a sequel. <laughs> so there's that. Um, imagine this, Rob. You're uh, <clears throat> you're at a wonderful Christmas gathering of your family, and uh, you're called away. You're called away uh, to, for work. There's an emergency, and they need you. And uh, the next thing you know, you're on a flight uh, overseas, and uh, your plane crashes, and you're stowed away uh, uh, or cast away on an island. Sounds terrible. It's a great Christmas movie, though, starring Tom Hanks. It's a movie about a man who gets a volleyball and nothing else. You know, wait a second here, right? Now, by that standard, then, The Godfather is a Christmas movie. I agree. <laughs> Goodfellas is a Christmas movie. I've never seen I don't it. Know the, the mere appearance of Christmas. Oh, wait a second. Wait a second. No. <laughs> is is what, the threshold. What's the, what, is the, what is buttressing your Die Hard argument, then? Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Die Hard takes place entirely at Christmas. Well, so does... And it's about saving Christmas. Oh, you want to talk about saving Christmas? <laughs> That's exactly what Tom Hanks does. He's to deliver this Christmas gift. Obviously, that's why he got called into work for this shipment on the FedEx plane. And he's got this box and he still gets it to its rightful owner. That's a triumph of Christmas. I don't think that was a Christmas gift. Well, you don't you don't know. (laughs) Well, we need to know that's uh, in order to, you know, to meet the criteria. Don't you think she was happy to receive it, though? Probably. That's um, that's unclear. We don't know. <laughs> I guess she, well, just kinda, she took the box at the end of the movie. Oh, thanks. <laughs> well, she, well, she didn't open it. No. It could have been like, uh, you know, threatening letters. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember the commercial, the parody ad in like the Super Bowl that year? No. Where like he, he's all scraggly and he delivers the, the box and then he goes, by the way, what's inside? And she opens it up. She goes, oh, it's just like a satellite phone, uh, some rations, uh, some... <laughs> some iodine for drinking water, <laughs> matches, a blanket. Uh, you know, it's funny. I haven't even seen Die Hard on TV yet. No? Usually it's on around this time. You're going to see enough broadcasters sort of recognize it as that. Christmas Vacation was on last night. That one's fun. It just it got me thinking last week because the kids were watching Home Alone, which is really seen as a Christmas movie. And to me, it, there's a real parallel because Home Alone is kind of like Die Hard for kids, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it's because yeah. here we got this go this that. loner who's you know just doesn't get the the respect that he deserves or wants, and he's got to take matters into his own hands and stop these terrorists and save Christmas. Exactly. That's John McClane. That's Kevin McAllister. Uh, I can't argue that in much the same way that I can't argue that uh, Star Wars is a. Uh, uh, is a movie about an uneducated cast-off whose father is killed in a military strike, and he becomes radicalized and uh, sets out to uh, battle the Empire. Have you seen the uh, Star Wars Holiday Special? No, I have not. It's such a great story. We should get into it sometime. It's it's up on YouTube, although it keeps getting taken down, and then someone else has to go and post it, because I think whoever is now in charge, I guess the Disney people, Disney, yeah. no one wants it to see the light of day. It was something that aired on TV Shortly after Star Wars came out, and they're just trying to cash in on it. And it was just seemed like they just someone came up with it when they were drunk one night, and none of it makes sense. They came up with some weird Wookiee holiday that they were trying to save. So it wasn't actually about Christmas. Right. And it just had a lot of weird guest appearances and things that made no sense at all. 
And I think everyone involved just after, right after the fact, just wished that it had never happened. And they've tried to <laughs> erase it from existence uh, ever since. But uh, it's out there if you want to find it. So, all right. No one ever mentions that as one of the best Christmas the best movies. <laughs> I wonder why that would be. Well, you know, that does it for us. Uh, for today, we're going to, why don't you roll the calendar on the wall to two days without a war on Christmas phone call? We're up to two. <laughs> See if we can get well, it. We had a great to... one Friday. Oh, I know. I listen... oh, was that Friday? I thought that was Thursday. No, that was Friday. So okay, really, well, just then. one show. Yeah, That's leave it. that at one then, where, yeah. it's, where it was installed. And uh, we'll see if we can get through tomorrow's show without a war on Christmas phone call. All right. Danielle Smith is uh, standing by, and uh, she'll be in following the 1230 News. We'll be back tomorrow morning at 930. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge. We'll talk to you then.